0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan.
1: G.K. Chesterton once said, We are perishing for lack of wonder, not for lack of wonders. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades.
2: This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone.
1: And Jonathan, what's our topic for today's episode?
2: Well, Rick, our question is, are praise and worship necessary to be a faithful Christian? And our theme text is found in John chapter 4, verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers.
1: Okay, good subject. Your praise and worship necessary to be a faithful Christian. And also joining us today is Julie.
3: Hello, gentlemen. I've been using the words praise and worship all my life and recently realized that I don't know exactly what they mean. Are we praising and worshiping the way God wants us to? I'd like to know, is there a formula or a checklist that we can use to do the right thing? Because I often use these words interchangeably. Are they kind of the same thing?
1: All right. Well, coming up in today's podcast, it's exactly what we want to talk about. We're supposed to worship God, right? But let's face it, it, most of us don't really know what it means. And Julie, that's kind of what you said. Is worshiping bowing down? Is it mindless obedience? Is it idolizing? In our first three segments, we're going to define what worship is and how it works. And the the answers are actually surprising. What about praise? We praise God. Why? Does it make God happy? Is it to make us feel better? Do we praise Him because we're supposed to? In our last two segments, we're going to dig into the depth and power of what praise is and how it can be a powerful tool of godly living. So praise and worship coming at you um, from a very scriptural, hopefully, perspective. So to get started on all of this... We're looking at Christian praise and worship. As with many things subject to interpretation, you're going to find differing applications of these things within the Christian community. For some, praise and worship are expressed in music. This drives their gatherings and feeds positive emotions toward God. For others, praise and worship include music and inspiration and play a significant role in their gatherings as a focusing element for being open to God's Word. Others still have praise and worship in a smaller role. So... Who's right? Does it matter? Are praise and worship, like Julie asked, two parts of the same thing, or are they entirely different? How do I know if I'm paying enough attention to praising God and living a life that expresses an attitude of worship? So many questions, so little time. So where do we start? First, let's understand what worship is. We're going to start with the New Testament and back into the Old Testament. Here's the first use of the word for worship in the New Testament. It is in the context of the Magi looking for the child Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, and then verses 7 and 8.
2: Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him.
3: Okay, so what did exactly these Magi do? Like, what did it mean to say that, oh, they worshiped him?
2: Well, uh, the Magi bowed before Jesus, they gave gifts, and it means that they would speak of Jesus to everybody uh, that they came in contact with. It it was a miracle to them.
1: So there were very specific physical things that the Magi did to, um, to, to, to make things work. And so, and that is very much an Old Testament viewpoint of worship. Jonathan, the the definition for worship here is what for the in the New Testament.
2: It means to fawn or crouch to that is liter- literally or figuratively, prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence, to adore.
1: You know, and it says to fawn or crouch, and and you think about that, and you think about a fawn, you think about a baby deer. And when you see that baby deer, its head is always way down low because it's, it's still weak. And, that, and that, that, that low posture is the sense that you get from worship. So the Magi want to worship. They want to bow low before Jesus. They want to give him gifts. They want to honor him because they know that he is the Messiah. Jesus first mentions worship in the New Testament when he's being tempted by Satan. And Jesus, interestingly, doesn't bring it up, but Satan does in a very negative way. Luke chapter 4, verses 5-8. through 8.
2: And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours." Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only.
1: So Satan is saying, Hey, look, I know you came for the kingdoms of the world. Let me make it easy. I'll give them to you. Just worship before me. And Jesus' answer is pretty simple can't be done, never will be done, not appropriate for it to be done. Go away. You know, I mean, really, that, that's what it what it boils down to. And that's that same worship, that, that fawn or crouch word that we were talking about. And Jesus, in his answer, is quoting uh, probably from Deuteronomy 6.13. He could be quoting from Deuteronomy 10.20, but we'll read Deuteronomy 6.13 here to get a sense of what he's saying, because he's going back to the law.
2: You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You should not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you.
1: So the idea is to fear only the Lord your God and worship him. Worship is a slightly different, well, it's it's an Old Testament word. So there's two words, Jonathan. First, what does the word fear mean? You shall fear the Lord your God.
2: Well, it means to fear morally or to revere. And worship, in this case, means to work, to serve till causatively enslave, etc.,
1: So it can be a lot of different things, but the idea is to serve or to till. In other words, you are in service of, you're doing something to show your your loyalty. That's what you have as a sense of worship here uh, that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. So we've got the Magi wanting to worship Jesus, rightfully so, We have Satan wanting Jesus to worship him, wrongfully so. Jesus saying you only worship God, rightfully so. We're we're setting a context for worship in the New Testament. Worship of God was clearly set in order as a top priority of life in the Ten Commandments. And and there's no equivocation on this. So let's drop back there, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5.
2: You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God.
3: He's saying their primary responsibility is to worship him alone. And it was certainly a privilege, but it was also an obligation here, and everything else was secondary.
1: Yeah, there's no equivocation here. God first, God foremost Everything else follows. And he says, you do not worship any of these idols. You don't. You don't. You don't. So worship is a very serious matter, especially we're seeing from the Old Testament, God putting himself before us as, obviously, the one and only God. And Jesus supporting that in his conversation with Satan and um so we've got a, a foundation, and again, it's this bowing down, this low posture, but it implies the lifestyle with that posture. So, Jonathan, in that Exodus 20, verses 3 to 5, there was a def- that word worship was actually different than the one in the previous verse.
2: It, it was, and it's curious. It means to depress, that is, uh, prostrate um dep- what does it mean to depress
1: when something's depressed it's it's made low you know you know when somebody's de- physically emotionally depressed their emotions are low okay when you depress something you make it small if you have a sponge and you depress it it's lower you know so the idea is to be made low before god that's what this is really all about so julie as we wrap up this introduction this very basic introduction of worship what do we have
3: Worship towards God in the Bible is all about being a humble subject. It encompasses the act of bowing fully in subservience, and it includes the lifestyle that supports the meaning of that action. I think that's where we're really going to come. It's it's the lifestyle.
1: And this is important. It's really important for us to see and understand how worship actually works from a practical standpoint, because we really do want to be practical with this. So, worship is a major commitment as we get to know God. Once we submit to Him, we can then learn about Him.
2: Worship is widely spoken of in the Old Testament. What were Jesus' teachings about worship?
0: Are you just getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com. Then click on the Bible Study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions.
1: Ancient history gives us graphic des- depictions of what worship meant by the expectations that kings had of their loyal subjects. It may be surprising to learn that Jesus didn't speak to his disciples even once about proper worship. He never spoke to them once. Though, though he didn't speak to them about it directly, he did teach us what it means. So th- that to me was a fascinating revelation. Jesus never talked to his disciples even once about worship. So wait, wait, how is that possible? Well, stay with us. Let's, let's give us a chance to unfold this. Jesus' only direct teaching regarding worship was his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. So before we get into that story, we need to be reminded of the bitter rivalry between Jews and Samaritans at that time. It was, it was really, really something serious. So Julie, we have a, a quote here from the and Strong Cyclopedia of the Bible.
3: The establishment of a separate worship made the breach existing between the Jews and Samaritans irreparable. From this time, malcontent Jews resorted to Samaria, and the very name of either people became odious to the other. About the year BC 129, John Hyrcanus, high priest of the Jews, destroyed the city of the Samaritans. Yeah, that's not good.
1: Yeah, so take that. And, and I mean, th- there are other quotes that say, you know, if a Samaritan touched the garment of a Jew or a Jew touched the garment of a Samaritan, they tossed themselves into a pool of water immediately to clean themselves because it was, I mean, we're, we're talking a bitter, bitter, bitter rivalry. And yet Jesus takes time to talk to the Samaritan woman at the well. So now when we get into this story, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to sum up the first part of the story for us. But the word for worship is mentioned nine times In this following account so there this is not just a passing discussion this is focused on worship
2: we know that Jesus asked the woman from Samaria for a drink of water from the well he then explains the living water he has that can truly quench human or spiritual thirst when she asks him for this water Jesus reveals some of her life history regarding having five husbands and living with a man who isn't her husband at all here we drop into the story, John four nineteen through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all
1: things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak
2: to you am he.
1: So this is a remarkable conversation. Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but this Samaritan woman, Samaritans were at odds with Jews, and one of the things they were at odds about is the method and place of worship. And she says to Jesus, while they're talking at the well, not knowing who he is, you know, we worship in this mountain, and you people say that you should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to her, ma'am, an hour is coming, when none of that is going to be relevant, but God is going to look for his, 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 his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. What he's saying is, there's going to come a time when the place no longer is relevant. What will be relevant to true worship will be spirit and truth. God's spirit and God's truth of God's plan. That's what he's focusing on. So it's really interesting. There's no more place. He's announcing this, To a Samaritan woman, no less. And he's talking about worshiping uh, in in spirit and in truth. And just before he talked about giving her living water, and this water would be, you know, you'd never thirst again because it's spiritual water. Worship in spirit and in truth. You know, the the, the symbol for uh, truth in Scripture is water. Water, yeah. Living water. I'm giving you how worship will work. So Jesus is announcing unequivocally that worship no longer has to do with a place, but a way of life. This is important. So uh, Julie, several points on Jesus teaching uh, on worship, uh, on worshiping God.
3: So he talks about how people can worship God in ignorance, though their worship doesn't connect them to God. But people can also worship God with knowledge, but they still lack in their connection to God. And Christians, we have to worship God differently, in spirit and in truth. In spirit, with God's power at work in their lives, and in truth, with an understanding of God's purposes. This is the way to connect, in spirit and in truth.
1: So it's about connecting. So Jesus essentially mentions three different ways to worship. The first two have some kind of lack And he's kind of working his way up to what appropriate and powerful, quote, worship, unquote, is according to Jesus by following him. So the first thing he talks about with the Samaritan woman is ignorant worship. Now, ignorant worship, again, is he said to her, you're worshiping in the mountain, but you don't even know what you're worshiping. You don't have an understanding of it. Now, let's, let's be fair. You know, sometimes you're in a position where you may not understand, but you want to. There's something good in that. But still, if it's ignorant worship, you're missing a whole lot, and you're going to have to do some things to get around that. This is not the only example of ignorant worship in the Scriptures. Let's go to the New Testament. Acts 17, verses 22 to 24, Paul is talking to the Athenians, and he's explaining to them their own ignorant worship.
2: So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And Rick, in this verse, the word worship means to be pious, that is, towards God, to worship, or towards parents to respect or support.
1: So there's a slightly different meaning of worship here, and I think that's significant because he's telling the Athenians, he's saying, look, I know you're trying to be spiritual, and I appreciate that, and you're being pious toward this unknown God. You're not really actually in the full uh, experience worshiping because you really don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand anything about this unknown God, but let me give you a clue this unknown God doesn't dwell in temples. And isn't that what Jesus just said to the woman, in, the Samaritan woman at the well? Oh, yeah. It's no longer about a place, it's about a condition of mind and a condition of heart and the condition of having God working with you. So he's expressing to them, You're worshiping in ignorance, but I can help you because I can give you the truth about this unknown god so as we develop the idea of worship what we're developing is the thinking that goes into understanding what makes real solid life-changing worship and there's a big part of it that has to do with truth and it has to do with with the with with the spirit the spirit of god working through us with that truth worship is shaping up not as an activity, but actually as a way to be. So we've looked at ignorant worship, and Paul is is helping to correct uh, the the Athenians. So now let's go to what we'll we'll call knowledgeable but yet unconnected worship. Let's look at Matthew chapter twenty three verses twenty three and twenty four. This is Jesus really coming down hard on the Pharisees. They're the spiritual leaders of Israel, they're the ones who are responsible for Israel's condition, because they're the teachers, they're the guidance, they're the influence, and here's what he's telling them about their unconnected worship to God.
2: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you, tithe mint and dill and cummin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law—justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done, without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain at a
1: gnat and swallow a camel. So he's telling them, you are not guiding appropriately, and therefore your worship is off. It's unconnected. You're you're focusing on the wrong things. Your worship, your lifestyle toward God is tainted because you have brought into it your own thinking, your own power, your own place, your own position so that others can look at you. And he's saying, essentially, shame on you. Shame on you for being that way, for guiding Israel down the wrong path.
3: Now, this is a little early because I know we're going to get into praise soon, But in a little preview, this unconnected worship reminds me of what we might call indifferent praise. And here's some examples I was thinking of. Uh, First example, we're all singing a hymn with our congregation, expressing glory to God, not thinking of God at all, not considering the sentiment of the words, while we instead are thinking about our extensive things to do list and guilty. This isn't going to connect us to God. Uh, Example number two, we offer thanks for our food at mealtime and then complain that the vegetables are overcooked. So we weren't really thankful for that food, were we? And number three, what if we're called on to pray and our mind isn't on the prayer as much as we're wondering what impression this prayer is gonna make on those around us? So we, we can't expect for the Lord to hear our praise when we're uttering an expression that isn't heartfelt. And it's like these Pharisees, they were so hypocritical, they were worried about the little details and all everything was blowing up around them. So even the most faithful Christian can lose focus and just go through the motions, and we don't want to go through the motions.
1: So you were were specifically talking about very specific actions that all of us can easily be guilty of, and it's a matter of focus, because Jesus said there's a time, and it's now, that worship will, will be done in spirit and in truth, not necessarily in a place or this place or that But in the mind and heart of each individual, how are you doing with that? Are we focusing on it or are we paying lip service to those things which are necessary? This is hard because, you know, you want to be inspired when you talk about worship. You want to like, oh, yeah, I want to feel good. Well, great, but let's examine ourselves and let's examine the idea of bowing low before God and living in that place, and say, how do I every day express that bowing low? So, so, Jonathan, as we wrap up worship in this segment, what do we have? Well, worship
2: can be shallow and empty without a vital attachment to God. You know, it
1: can make us feel good, but it does not enhance a true connection to God. And that's such an important thing. The idea of worship can make us feel wonderful, but is it connecting us to our heavenly father
2: well rick an observation based on what what we found out the old testament needs means you know looks like it's earthly focused where now introduced the new
1: testament seems to be
2: spiritually focused with worship is is that a correct assessment
1: well again jesus said to the samaritan woman it's not about jerusalem anymore it's about worshiping where you are so yes it's not about the physical uh, physicality of a place or a ritual. It's about the dedication of the individual that's engaging all of this. This is hard. This is hard to get your head around. As a matter of fact, this can be unsettling. It makes me wonder what I might say, do, and think that limits my worship of God. How do
2: we avoid shallow worship and find the right and most genuine way to truly worship God?
0: We're rolling out new series content this year, multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as What Do We Do When the Bible Seems to Contradict Itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com.
1: Sometimes shallow or empty worship comes from our natural positioning in life. As with the pagan worshiping of an unknown God, we can also have some desire to worship God, but never change our position to pursue that worship. See, the key is connected and worthy worship require worthy effort to find it. This we have to begin to understand and focus on.
3: So we'd like to introduce several personal sound bites from Valerie. She's a CQ contributor and full disclosure, she's also my cousin. Uh, she's a dedicated Christian who really connected with this subject, and it has led to some great personal fellowship between us. So first we asked her what worship means to her.
4: And so to me, to worship the Lord in spirit, to worship God in spirit, means that we connect during the process with God on a spiritual level. And it isn't about rituals, it isn't about being in a particular church building, or even about music. Worship is about my wholehearted love and adoration for God and what he's done for me. Where music and meditation and being in a beautiful church building or even on mountains can all contribute to that spiritual connection with God of really expressing adoration for him. Those things aren't necessary, but they can be helpful.
2: So the theme uh, for this segment is connected and worthy worship.
1: All right. We need to focus on how do we get ourselves to connected and worthy worship. So to do that, we're going to look at very, very quickly the example of a very specific Christian, the first Gentile uh, convert, Cornelius. Cornelius was a great example of one whose desire for God remained unanswered for a long time.
3: And here's some homework for this week. We've got a two-part program called Cornelius, Why a Soldier? Parts 1 and 2, so you can look up episodes 866 and 870. Just an excellent story.
1: And what you'll find in, in that story is Cornelius is this Roman centurion, and he is not allowed to become Jewish but he loves the Jewish people, he loves the Jewish faith, and he's doing everything he can in his life to be supportive of those things. And that's where the story is going to unfold uh, as he is going to be drawn to Christ through the work of the Apostle Peter. So uh, Jonathan, well, first of all, so to, to have connected and worthy worship, we have to make worthy effort. You, you had mentioned that as the theme. We've got to make worthy effort. So we're going to look at several efforts of Cornelius. What's the first one?
2: If you can't be favored, then pour yourself
1: out to support
2: the favored. Okay. he certainly did that, didn't he?
1: He did in a big way. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 4.
2: Now there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, a devoted man, and one who feared God and all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually.
1: So here's a man who is not Jewish, who is out of favor because he's not and it doesn't seem to get in his way. He prays, he supports, he helps. He is focused because he sees God in their, their, their nation and in their lives and their law, and he wants to contribute to it even though he can't literally be a part of it. So what happens?
2: About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him, and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God.
1: So, so what happens here is this angel appears to him and says, You know, you've been praying, and I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing here. You've been praying all this time, and you've been helping and supporting God's chosen people all of this time. And the prayers that you've offered up, offered up to God have ascended as a memorial for you and I'm here to tell you, the angel says to Cornelius, now is the time for your prayers to be answered. The time has finally come for the door to godly worship to open. And through that door enters the apostle Peter. So Peter comes to his house because Peter was given a vision to come and meet with him, a Gentile. And Peter does this even though, you know, the Jewish tradition says, no, you don't don't even talk to those folks. He's following God's will, and God's way. So the second worthy effort of Cornelius is what?
2: Be utterly humble before those who can show you the way.
1: And Peter's the one. Peter's the one who can show him the way. Here's what happens, Acts 10, 25 to 26.
2: When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised
1: him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. So Peter shows that humility of character that says, you don't worship me. I am here as a messenger for the one who you are to worship. Stand up. You and I, we are the same. And that's a powerful statement coming from a Jew talking to a Gentile in in spiritual matters. A powerful statement. So Cornelius is willing to be as humble as possible because he wants so badly to be pleasing to God. And see, he's already... Living a life that is worship-oriented, he just doesn't understand yet how it all works. Peter is going to show it to him. What's the worthy effort number three from Cornelius? Listen
2: and learn so you can be led to have a standing before God.
1: In order to live a life of worship that's connected, connected, listen and learn. Acts 10, 34 to 35.
2: Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him.
1: When, when you understand where Peter came from, to be able to make this statement is nothing short of a miracle. It took a vision from heaven for him to understand the magnitude of what was about to happen. And he goes before Cornelius, doesn't even know the man, and says, I know that God is with you. Now, he's a Gentile. That could have never happened before. But Peter doesn't hesitate. So Cornelius is listening, and he's learning. And what he's going to find out is how to truly live a life of connected worship. That's what he's learning here. What's worthy effort number four from Cornelius?
2: receive the tools to worship in spirit and in truth.
1: You have to have the tools. Peter was there to bring them, Acts 10, 44.
2: While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were
1: listening to the message. The Spirit comes, and now they have the Spirit, and Peter has told them the truth, and now Cornelius and his household are now in a place to better worship God in a connected way. So Julie, as we wrap up this quick look at the efforts that Cornelius made to put himself in position to have connected and worthy worship, what do we have?
3: New Testament worship is selfless, sacrificial, and all about service. There's a few bells and whistles, but in their place is the presence of God before us.
1: So really what it boils down to is worship as a Christian— is not fancy. It's not dramatic. It's consistent, selfless sacrifice and service. Because the word worship actually means to bow low. How are you living low? That's what Christian worship is about. It's not about a place. It's about who you are. It's about spirit. It's about truth.
3: Well, let's finish Val's personal definition of what worship is. Previously, she explained how it isn't about these specific rituals, and she reiterated what Jesus said, that worship isn't required to be in a specific location.
4: The second part of that definition of worship that Jesus gives us in John, where he says that we need to worship God in truth, is one that really requires a good amount of soul searching. I think I have to make sure that when I am in that time of worship, that I am wanting to commune with God out of a pure heart. I'm not doing it to check it off of my to-do list so I can get on with my day, or I'm not doing it with a lot of at church to be seen, or if I had a beautiful singing voice to make sure that those around me
0: heard.
3: I think, you know, her comment about the pure heart, I think that directly relates to what you were saying before, Rick, about being connected. You know, if you you come without a pure heart, that's hypocrisy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes we we come before God because we know we're supposed to. And and so you say, okay, well, should I not go before God because I know I'm supposed to and I don't feel like it, so therefore I shouldn't? Now, let's be careful about that because, no, you should go before God anyway and tell him that you're not feeling it. You see, there's a difference between going before God and faking it and going before God and acknowledging it. And part of living a life of worship is understanding our own human ups and downs. Because I really believe that worship is a lifetime experience. It's not an event. It's this unfolding experience. You live a life of worship. You live a life of bowing down before God. To me, this is really, really critical for understanding. So we've, we've looked a little bit at Cornelius and really appreciate Val's very personal insight into saying, okay, these are the things that I have to do to get myself ready to be of that worship attitude. Very, very, very effective, very important. So let's look at it for all Christians. We, we looked at Cornelius, okay, the, the first Gentile convert. Well, Paul shows us how to grow into this life of worship based in spirit and in truth. And I think he shows us the beginning of the chapter 12 of Romans. We're going to take the first few verses and look at these using the analogy of a seed you know first thing you have to do is you plant a seed and then you know you've got to, it there, there's changes in development for it to grow and to mature so the first point christian worship is planted with the figurative act of bowing low in subservience. and subservience and i'm stressing figurative because it's about our life and we know that through romans chapter 12 verse 1 therefore
2: i urge you brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship.
3: Oh, I see it. Okay, so presenting ourselves as living sacrifice, that's the bowing part. So now we have to live that loyalty that we've just expressed.
1: Right, right. So you present and you, and, and you bow. Liter- well, you know, literally, figuratively, however we want to put it. But now it's a matter of, okay— I'm on the altar. <laughs> you know, my body's on the altar. You know, and somebody once said, I don't know who it was, but it's a very clever statement, the trouble with a Christian sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> you know, and, and the idea is you've been planted by offering your life as a living sacrifice, and when God accepts that, now it's time for the next step. So you're planted. You're that seed in the ground. So the next step is to germinate. Christian worship germinates when we take action and transform from mere seed into growing plants. And that's Romans 12, verse 2.
2: And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect.
3: So here's where worshiping in spirit is going to start reaching deeper. You know, you've used this idea of a seed. We have to be transformed into Christ-likeness. To me, this means less of self and more of Christ until someday we can say none of self and all of Christ. There's a hymn that uses those terms that I just love.
1: And that's not uh, an overnight thing. You know, tomorrow morning, Julie, I hate to break it to you, but you're not going to wake up all of Christ and none of self it's a transformation process. I am not waking up tomorrow all of Christ and none of self. I can promise you that. I would like to, but I know that's not going to happen. We have to walk the walk. We have to talk the talk. We have to live the life of worship. So we move forward. Christian worship then, once it germinates, it can begin to sprout. You know, the transformation process has begun. Christian worship sprouts when, in, when in our action we embrace the humility that we need to see clearly. Let's look at Romans twelve three.
2: For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. As God here is allotted to each a measure of
1: faith. So the idea here is the humility that's required for transformation to not just take hold but for it to really grow into something because we can be working at transforming our character but if we don't have the humility that says i sh- i cannot think more highly than i ought to think of myself and and puts that in practice that's not just a thought that's an action that's a decision we're not going to be able to truly truly um uh, sprout go ahead julie
3: selfish worship which is the opposite of what he's saying to do. It wants God's blessings for selfish reasons, like material gain, or we want success in business. And that's why we're going to go along with this, because God can give us something. So it reminded me of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee prayed, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And that was the wrong prayer. That was a very pompous prayer.
1: And, and so the idea is that humility can bring the sprouting, which brings us further along the line to maturity. Christian worship matures when we see how we can be a contributory part of the body of Christ. Newsflash, it's about much more than just me. Romans 12, 4 and 5.
2: For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another.
3: Worshiping in truth is knowing God's plan and finding your part in it. We need to be spiritually harvestable for God. Being faithful unto death is in Revelation
1: 2.10. So it's about living a life of worship. It's about committing yourself to worship every day in my daily activities. So, so Julie, let's, let's start to put this together for Christian worship.
3: Christian worship is a way of life. Our acts of worship are a direct outgrowth of our dedicated service and loyalty. The stronger the loyalty, the deeper the worship.
2: Well, Rick and Julie, I have a summation of worship based on everything that we've talked about. The journey is the worship. It's the loyalty. It's the giving of ourselves, the charity that we give. It's the study we engage in. It's the fellowship, the co-laboring, the self-denial, it's our following through on our commitment, which is to do God's will and not our own. Like the verse says, be faithful unto death. This is worshiping God.
3: So, See, I, it's so much bigger than I ever thought it would be. When we started this subject, I was like, you know, what is it? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot because it's our whole life.
1: And, and I think that's the thats the point. That's the, the big learning point for me on worship is it's an expression of, of who i am every day because i bow down figuratively and then i live what bowing down actually means
2: and before we go on to praise is there a difference between worshiping god and honoring god because a lot of these things i mentioned in our summation i think is connected to honoring god too
1: yeah, you know it's hard to. I, I I'm not I'm not sure how much of a difference there is there because you know I think that to to worship I think gives you the sense of that that commitment that says here I offer myself to you in service, complete service. And Jesus said, worship in God in spirit and in truth. And so it's not in in, in terms of a place. To honor God is the result of that giving our lives to be worshiping on a daily basis. And, you know, when I look at this now and I think about it, it's like, wow, you know what I get to do today? I get to worship God. And, you know, sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes I get tired. Sometimes my brain just doesn't want to think. But if there's something that needs to be done, one of the things I've begun to say to myself is, guess what you get to do, Rick? You get to worship. Now go to work. And that is it because that's the extent. That's what this bowing down actually means, let us see worship as the way we live every day. To be footstep followers of Jesus, to be a living example of worshiping God, what a breathtaking privilege.
2: With all this said about worship, how and where do we incorporate praise into the life of a Christian?
0: If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle, at CQBiblePodcast. Or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion.
1: Now that we've established worship as a way of life, we can see praise for what it is. A vital expression that bubbles up and over at the greatness of God praise can be exhibited in a wide variety of ways and is often very closely associated with worship.
2: Real, honest to goodness, genuine godly praise is an outgrowth of a life of worship.
1: I I think that nails it down. It's very straightforward that praise comes from a life of worship.
3: Yeah, so we asked Val now what praise personally means to her and I was a little surprised by her answer.
4: I think when I am giving my true praise to God, it has to do with me counting my blessings for the day, for the hour, whatever it might be, and really realizing that everything that I have, every talent I might possess are all gifts from God. And so it puts me in a frame of mind to try and be just constantly looking for something to praise God for. I can praise God even in the midst of sadness, or tragedy. Praise doesn't always have to accompany a picture-perfect kind of day. That you can be in the trenches of something very sad or very trying, but you can still be in a mindset of being thankful and praising God in the midst of it.
3: Val and I talked about praising while sad in detail after this interview. And we, we all sometimes get very emotional, which isn't bad because God created us with emotions. But during rough times, we sometimes, you know, we want to be able to say, well, this must be God's will. You know, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans twenty eight twenty eight. Yay, <laughs> but that's not how I'm feeling right now. And we know deep down it's true, but sometimes we have to actually go through the feelings. And then we take a breath. And we go back and we're able to latch onto those scriptures that we know are true. You know, it's difficult, but we learn that our trials are praiseworthy because we gain experience and then endurance and then spiritual maturity and then inner peace.
1: So what are we supposed to do when it's difficult? Work through it and find the praise. The praise may not be evident in front of you, may not be just, you know, glaring at you. But I can assure you that if you work through it, it may take a little time, but you can find the praise and then let the praise be once you get there. So let's take a look at praise. And we're going to take a look at praise in the Old Testament and in the New Testament because there's some very different kinds of things going on. Singing is a common, powerful method of praise. Let's look at Psalm chapter 66, verses 1 through 4.
2: And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. Shout ye to God, all the earth praise ye the honor of his name, make ye honorable his praise. Say to God, How fearful are thy works by thy abundance of thy strength. Thine enemies feign obedience to thee. All the earth do bow to thee, they sing praise to thee, they praise thy name. Selah,
1: you know, and it, it, it talks about all the earth bow before thee, and it talks about praise ye the honor of his name, shout to God all the earth. I mean, there's, a, there's an enthusiasm here that is just pouring out. It's interesting, in, in, in this particular translation, it says, thine enemies feign obedience to thee. Another translation says, uh, your enemies cringe before his mighty power. So you get the sense that God is over all and praise worthy. Sometimes it's hard to find it, but it's there. Shouts of encouragement, singing his glory, showing loyal worship. That's what this psalm is trying to show us here. Now, let's jump to the New Testament. And let's notice that worship here in the New Testament, because remember, Jesus, nor did the apostles, teach us directly about worship. But they did teach us about a life of service, a life of sacrifice. That is worship in the New Testament. Let's look at how that's a basis for praise in Colossians 3, 15 through 17.
2: Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks through him to God the Father.
1: So you have to start with the life of worship. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's a life of worship. Let the word of God richly dwell in you. That's a life of worship. Then, with all wisdom, teaching. Think about this. He's saying, the Apostle Paul is saying, teaching teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He's saying, let the enthusiasm of the the melodies that bring praise to God flow out of you as teaching tools for your brothers and sisters. This is a big thing. How many of us really do that? You know, it's interesting. When you look at the Apostle Paul, uh, Trish, uh, my wife, handed me a note. And she said, you know, Paul was a powerful contributor, and, you know, we all agree that he was, uh, to the church. And yet, he spent his entire life bowed down low in his heart, worshiping daily, and in his heart and his mind before God in Christ. That's how he served. That's what it was. It was about doing the will of God no matter what. God and Christ were always first, and Christ was his head, and he listened to the directions from the mind through the mind of christ so when we look at this and we look at the idea of teaching and admonishing one another with 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 psalms and hymns and spiritual songs it's enthusiastic it is inspirational let's not forget the power of those things so julie points of praise here
3: well i think a point of praise would be praise can be with words it could be with music it could be with both You can rehearse it inwardly or we can speak it or sing it outwardly. Praise, though, needs some sort of expression, be it silently in one's own heart or if we share it with others. And it sounds like we are supposed to be sharing it with others, ideally.
2: And think about it. We all have different personalities and praise differently. And think about the different cultures they have their own, you know, style of praisings, don't they?
3: Yeah, that's right. The cultural cultural differences are going to account for praise. I'm sure it's amazing when God hears all these different languages and cultures and costumes and everything up to him. It's beautiful.
1: You know, and what we want to do is we want to acknowledge that praise does flow from different individuals differently. And that's okay. What we want to do is be God-focused because we are worshiping in our daily existence, and let the praise come out of that worship. Whatever our culture is, however we can express it, and we want it to be only spiritual. And we'll we'll, we'll develop that a little bit further. So many, many Christians, when praising and praying and worshiping, lift their hands up toward heaven. And the question arises, well, is that scriptural? And the answer is, yes, it is. However, the context of this practice in scripture is very important so we just want to touch on this and establish a scriptural context just as a point of reference and a point of study there's much more on this in the bonus material the lifting up of holy hands in scripture is well documented and it's a posture of prayer it is a posture of prayer let's look at the uh, the, the the only time it appears in the new testament first timothy 2 verses 8 through 10
2: therefore i want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adore themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness.
1: So the idea is this lifting up of holy hands is to be humble in prayer without wrath, without dissension. Albert Barnes has some good commentary on this. Just a few lines, Julie.
3: Oh, and we also have a lot more on lifting of hands in the CQ Rewind show notes available with this audio. So Barnes says, regarding lifting up holy hands, to lift up the hands denotes supplication, as it was a common attitude of prayer to spread abroad the hands towards heaven. Holy hands here means hands that are not defiled by sin and that have not been employed for any purpose of iniquity.
1: Okay, so the idea is you need to have that purity of heart and action to have this posture of prayer that's acceptable to God. An example of this from the Old Testament is Lamentations chapter 2, verse 19.
2: Arise, cry aloud in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the
1: head of every street. So the idea, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him. Be so thoroughly engaged in that prayer. That's what this lifting up of of, of hands is. It's, it's It's a very inspirational look when you see it. Um, it mentioned so many times in the Old Testament.
3: Wait a minute. Didn't we hear water before? Pour out your heart like water? We yeah. worship him in water and in truth? Yeah, is there any connection? Well,
1: you know, water is a symbol of truth, you know, and so I think the idea of pouring out your heart like water is really to say, empty yourself before God. Pour yourself out, because when you pour water out of a cup, all that's left are the drips, and you just let it sit there upside down till there's nothing left. That's why god is worthy of praise because he will accept everything from us because he wants to bless us so interesting thing the old testament praise was far more demonstrative than what we have in the new testament let's take a look at a couple of old testament praise examples psalm 150 verses 3 to 6
2: praise him with trumpet sound praise him with harp and lyre praise him with timbrel and dancing Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let
1: everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I think we got the point, Jonathan. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it says, call out, call out the instruments. Praise God with all of this. David, King David, danced mightily before God at the return of the Ark of the Covenant. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 and 16.
2: And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart.
3: Michal looked at him with contempt and disgust, even though what David was doing wasn't wrong, and it wasn't disrespectful, but she thought he was undignified. And David's irritated, and he tells her that what he did was for the glory of God and that if he would get more, give more glory by still further demeaning himself, he would do so. So he's a little snarky there. Um, so she did, she died without ever having a child, which is a big deal in those days, and we never hear about her with David again. So I think the lesson is we can't discredit or critique someone else's genuine act of praise just because we aren't comfortable with it. It was acceptable for her not to join in that procession and to dance, but I don't think it was acceptable for her to discredit the value of what David was doing for the Lord.
1: Yeah, you know, she really was worried about appearances. You're the king. You should act more dignified than that. And David's response essentially is, I am the servant of God. I had no choice but to rejoice. And so right. really, you get this sense of, of strength in his, in his uh, experience.
3: So in that vein, I have a question. Yes. You know, there's a lot of debate online as to whether or not it's appropriate to have a church band as part of praise and worship. Should musical instruments be used? And answers range from, well, there's no mention of instruments in the New Testament, so we should sing a cappella in church, not even an organ or a piano. But on the other side of the spectrum, silence from Jesus and the apostles on this topic, excuse me, means anything goes and some mega churches have these large stage productions of lights and a full band and choir singing. Is there a right way to do it? And should we be judging those who see it differently than we do?
1: Sure, make my job tough. Thank you. <laughs> Settle the score. Settle the score. Well, here, here's the thing I think that we need to be cognizant of. Why is it that in all of the New Testament there isn't a mention of any musical instrument in terms of praise? Not one, not once, anywhere. You have a harp in Revelation, okay? That's it. Uh, So why? And I think the answer lies in what praise is supposed to bring us. Paul doesn't say bring in the instruments. He doesn't say leave them out. He just doesn't talk about them. Here's the circumstance. He is talking to Christians who were once pagan. He's talking to people in Corinth. He's talking to people in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they had the statue to Diana and this incredible temple to Diana. Here's the problem with paganism, and I would say the problem with our world today as well. The problem is that paganism is full of rituals. Rituals were full of music, and the music was what was used to draw the people into the rituals, and the rituals were designed to make human sensuality the doorway to spirituality. So you have this combination of these things at work, in society, in front of Paul. So I think, and this is very much a Rick opinion, that he doesn't mention instruments at all because he's not wanting to have them consciously bring forward that previous tradition That was actually sensual, not spiritual. Our praise is supposed to be spiritual. Can musical instruments contribute to that? Absolutely. Can musical instruments overdone, detract from that? Unbelievably, yes. And we've seen many examples of that. So I think Paul is saying, I'm not going to mention that. I'm mentioning singing. I'm mentioning encouraging because that's what praise is built on. And if you build around those things with spirituality only in mind, you're on the right track. So is it all right for us to judge? Uh, you know, we got to be careful. we got to yeah, be can careful. Yeah, could
3: be the praise police.
1: Right, because you don't know. You don't know how, how things are going with, with somebody else. And, and look, if something is disturbing to you, then you don't go there, okay? Uh, for me to look at somebody and say, you're doing it wrong. You shouldn't have this or that instrument. That's not my right or my place. I need to understand what praise is and work on it. And it praise should be bringing glory to God. Now, another side of this very quickly that I'm not going to address too much is the idea of not using our liberty as a stumbling block for others. So I could say to you, well, I'm going to bring in, you know, a 17-piece band, and I don't care what you think. Well, that's not a very spiritual attitude, the I don't care what you think. All right? So... We have to be able to talk through these things when we have issues. And folks, if we don't talk through them, then how Christian are we being? I mean, let's, let's be honest. So l- let's wrap up this segment, Jonathan, points of praise, what do we have?
2: All praise for the days of the Jews under the law or from the time of the call of the church is meant to glorify God's plan.
1: That's it. It's meant to glorify God's plan. That's what it's about. It's not about my emotion. It's about God's plan. And if my emotion is built up because of that, wonderful. But it's about God's plan. Make no mistake. When we think about praise, it becomes evident that it's meant for us to praise him in all areas of our life. As Christians, what should our praise look like? How can
2: we be sure our praise will bring God glory
0: Our team of volunteers are accomplishing amazing work every week as we release new audio, video, and web content, helping create the Christian Questions Multimedia Ministry. There are several ways you can get more involved in our not-for-profit mission. Click on Support CQ in our main menu on ChristianQuestions.com.
1: because christianity is made up of individuals who are endowed with varied levels of emotion sensitivity and outward expressiveness this can be a difficult question to answer about what our praise should look like suffice it to say that we have several spiritually grounded guidelines of christian praise that we can follow and they're written right here in the new testament
3: so now val is going to give us a really practical suggestion when it comes to praise So we're all going to need to go find our red chairs.
4: I've noticed that I have a real problem quieting my mind, quieting all my thoughts about what I have to do in the day, who I need to take care of, what needs to be accomplished. My husband and I decided that we were going to make the red flowered chair in our living room the meditation spot, and it just became known to the kids and to each other that if Whoever was sitting in the chair was having some good, quiet time with the Lord, either praying or reading or meditating or what have you. And so it got to be just a really nice, safe, quiet spot that everyone in the house knew that if someone was sitting there, that you just kind of left them alone until they got up and were ready to move on with the rest of their day. So that was kind of a little discipline that worked really well for us.
3: And what an easy, practical thing to set up in any home. For some, it might be going out for a long walk or a run and contemplating scriptures or counting our blessings. You know, the other thing Val does is she found that her prayers at night would start and the next thing she knew it was morning (laughs) so for decades now she's written down her nightly prayers and apparently has many many stacks of notebooks full this is her time with the Lord and actively writing helps her to focus exactly what she wants to communicate to God when she's done writing she said she puts her pen down and says out loud I love you Lord amen and then she goes to sleep I think this is just beautiful practical suggestions
1: you know, the idea is to live that life of worship at every at every stage, and to 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 make it real. And for Val, obviously, that makes it real. And what an inspirational example uh, to to be able to do that, Val. Thank you, thank you for your contributions and your taking the time to uh, you know be thoughtful for so that others can also be thoughtful. So let's take a look at several things. From a a New Testament standpoint for Christians, what should our praise look like? Well, first of all, our offerings or sacrifices to God should be praise-driven. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through
2: him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Uh, You know, Rick and Julie, I didn't grow up learning about the Bible and studies the way the two of you did. I was raised in a Christian home, and my dad was a choir director in the church we attended. Now, music was a major part in going to church for our family. Now, in church, there was the choir, the bells at Christmas, and so on. And, And the church was beautiful, but it really was a performance. When the church service started, the choir would walk between the pews singing while the minister walked up behind them, and and we'd sit up in the choir loft, and I was uncomfortable with that. Everyone's staring at you during the whole service, <laughs> so like, can I duck out of here? <laughs> but uh, when the service was finished, we'd walk right back down the aisle um, singing, and it was very ceremonial. But to me, as a young person, it didn't feel like there was substance to it. The truth is, I felt closer to God in Sunday school when the teacher read Bible stories than I did in the main church service. But that's just my own experience.
1: You know, and, and it kind of sounds like you were looking for getting the life of worship so the praise could not be empty for, for you. And, and Absolutely. I think, and I think that's, that's, that's really what we want to strive to do wherever we are. How strong is my life of worship so that my praise can be more full. Let's go on to the to the next point. Thanks, thanks for sharing that, Jonathan. Our, our spiritual communication, our spiritual communication, one with another, should be praiseworthy. Now think about this, when you communicate with others of like-mind Christians, what you communicate should be praiseworthy. Ephesians 5, 19 to 21.
2: Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the
1: fear of Christ. So, you know, what you've got here, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Christ to God, even the Father. Do we do that when we speak to one another? Come on now. Do we really do that all the time? Or are we venting so much and we're not framing? Look, it's okay to need to vent, but frame it in the context of a life of worship. It will mean something different when you do that.
2: Is there an appropriate time or place for inspirational music other than our church services? Oh, I hope so.
1: I hope so. I mean, we really need to wh- whatever it takes. I love, I love music. I love to be moved by music. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when I am studying and preparing for podcasts, and I and I hit a hit a brick wall, you know, in, in in the thinking, a lot of times I'll just put on some kind of classical music that just moves me, and it helps me to move forward. Or 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 hymns or spiritual songs that I love to listen to, they just help to center me. So yes, please make time for such things. They're so important. So. Let's go on to rejoicing. Our rejoicing, when appropriate, should be outward. And I want to stress when appropriate. We'll talk about that in a second. James five thirteen, Is anyone among
2: you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises.
3: <clears throat> All right, so let me ask you. I have a couple things. Do these things count as praise? Counting your blessings out loud. Is that praise or worship?
1: See, I think, I think that's praise. I think that's the, the, the offering up to God what your life has produced for you.
3: Okay, what about being thankful for whatever the Lord permits your way today?
1: When you engage in the act of thankfulness, I think you're engaging the, in the act of praise when you, because you're, you're cognizant of it. See, to me, praise is an action that, that, that is, is, is stimulated by something. So yes, I think that's praise.
3: Okay, what about when Jonathan sings hymns while he works? Because he does that.
1: Yes, he does. And I think, (laughs) and I think, I actually think that that is more worship than praise because it's keeping his mind set on God as he does his mundane work. But there's certainly a praise attachment to it. So I think that's one of those things where you've got both of those things working in high gear. And that's, I think that's pretty cool actually.
3: Jonathan, do your clients ever hear you?
1: Sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like,
3: oops, sorry. Do, do they look askance at you or do they sing in with you?
2: Uh, they, they smile. <laughs> okay. I haven't gotten a negative reaction.
3: <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, okay. How about reading a devotional book when you get up in the morning? Like a few paragraphs of something that's uplifting.
1: See, I think that's worship. I think that's feeding your, your, your life. I think that's getting yourself into the position of this is going to motivate my actions during the day. And Because it's a
3: habit. Right. It's a habitual thing every right. morning. Yeah. Okay. What about listening to a Christian Questions podcast while you clean out your closets?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's a good idea.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you do. Because I have I do have really clean closets because I do listen to CQ.
1: Um and, and Am I, I, think, I praising? I, I think that is. I, I think that is because that is an action that is just lifting you above as you go through that mundane thing. I think there's worship is part of that as well because it's helping you do that work, that physical earthly work with a spiritual attitude. So I think that is actually a combination.
3: Okay. I have one more. What about practicing a musical instrument to be used in a church service or a Bible camp?
1: I think I think mm-hmm. that's part of worship. Um, I do I think that's part of the activity of life that is is going to um, you're feeding it so that you can do it well. I think once you get out there and you actually do the hymn, that's more of the praise but the worship is in the in, in the work you know these are not easy questions I'm just going to tell you
3: <laughs> <laughs> well and you know the problem is or the good part is they're they're very intertwined yeah you know it's and so I can see why we we tend to use them interchangeably, but it seems like worship isn't something you do as a service it's how you live and it's yes. whatever contributes to that lifelong like you said the bowing the the prostrating the you know the, the 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 staying humble and worship i mean it's pretty amazing
2: yeah well now it's my turn to ask a question oh great get him get him you know, oh, is there is there a place uh, in a christian congregation for a like a devotional service that has singing poems and music uh, you know, not part of the regular, uh, but to add something. Is, is that appropriate? Oh, I hope Because it wasn't so. in
1: the New Testament. I, Jesus I, didn't I, tell us to well, do that. Well, but you know, it talks about singing and with psalms and so forth and doing it one to another. So when you get that sense of one to another, you get the sense that it can be the congregation working together and doing that. So yes, I think that, that is really important because it does help to connect us. So yes, look— praising God, you can never do enough of it as long as it's coming from that worship-filled life because that's fulfilling praise. And you it's transforming. When we praise, it can transform us. Are you guys done? Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. Let's go <laughs> on to this. No. One. Continue, please. Yeah. Okay. Our our responses to life's experiences should be based in a rejoicing attitude. So, and and I think you several of you, I don't even remember who mentioned this before. First Thessalonians five sixteen to twenty one. Rejoice
2: always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil,
3: and pray without ceasing. Doesn't mean you know say a prayer so long that it lasts the rest of your life. You know, he means we're to live in an attitude of prayer constantly. We live in an attitude of worship.
1: Yeah, and and that's important. To, and and for me, that's a that's a life sustaining habit, is to have that attitude of prayer going on regularly. Our characters should be by their very expression bringing praise to god our character when people see it should bring praise to god philippians 1 10 and 11
2: so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless unto the day of christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through christ jesus to the glory and praise of
1: god that you may approve the things that are excellent to be sincere and blameless. Now, look, we all make mistakes, but our character should show forth godliness, and others should be able to see that and say, "There's something spiritual, something different about this person." So, one more soundbite. This is praise, okay? And this is our own Sebastian, who is a a Christian questions contributor. He was uh, he was on our our part one of our racism uh, series. Um, he has wonderful musical talent. Here's a verse of a hymn with Sebastian.
5: And when I think That God, his son not sparing Sent him to die I scarce can take it in, That on the cross
1: Does your soul sing? Does it sing with praise? You know, praise does not have to be out loud. It can be internal. There are those of us who don't have that in us to be be that outward person. Great, wonderful. Are you praising in your heart? Are you singing your heart out to God inside of your own heart? Please do. Please do. Because this is how we better connect. Live that life of worship and sing your heart out. Whether other people can hear it or not, not even relevant. What's relevant is the transformation of putting ourselves in his service and singing praises as a result. Our calling should be a continual reminder of God's praiseworthy plan. You want to know why to praise? Listen to this, Ephesians 1, 4-6.
2: Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will, to praise the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved.
1: So when you talk about the predestined establishment of the call of the faithful ones, that means That from before the time Adam was created, God had this in his heart and in his mind and in his plan. Now that's a God that's praiseworthy, who can see the future and it works out for the benefit of every human being who ever lived. Praise God for that. Our worship and praise summed up now. It's all about God's plan and it's all about Jesus' sacrifice, just like Sebastian was singing Philippians 2 verses 8 through 11 our final scripture
2: Being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even the death on a cross For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those are that are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the
1: Father our, our God, the Father. So it's all about the plan of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. Let us never forget why we live this life of worship, why we engage in this praise. A life of worship is to serve loyally with the very essence of your being. Freely express the praises due our Father and our Lord Jesus. Express them quietly. Express them outwardly. I don't care. Just express them. Live the life that is bowed before Christ every day, every moment. Live worship and then praise. Let that praise come out of that life of humble, humble service. And watch what happens to you and to those around you. Praise God because he is the Father. Praise the Son because he is the ransom. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions uh, on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is, please rate us, review us, we'd greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to praise, okay? Please live the life of worship and don't forget to be praising as you go. Next week, next week, a little different subject. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? Let me give you a hint. There's much more to this than you might think. So we'll talk to you about that next week.